0: This is Tempest Tossed, conversations on migration and mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. For more than a century, Congress has denied entry to the United States of immigrants who are likely to become a public charge. That's the language in the statute, likely to become a public charge. And the Pretty straightforward idea here was that uh, immigrants shouldn't come to the U.S. if they will be on the public dole, if they'll be here at taxpayers expense. So they either need to have a job or job prospects or resources to take care of themselves or a sponsor in the U.S. who would support them when they are here. The public charge ground applies to applicants for admission, that is people overseas seeking visas to come to the United States and also people in the United States who are seeking to get their green cards, who will change from a a non-immigrant status like student or temporary worker to seek permanent resident status here. The statute doesn't define the term likely to become public charge and that's been left to adjudicators uh, over the years. Uh, These are visa officials overseas and immigration officers in the United States operating under guidance from the federal government and they've used a standard that looks at a variety of factors, age, employability, skills, health, language ability, things like that. And in this mix of factors, the prior use of certain cash benefits counted against the immigrant, cash benefits like welfare or supplemental security income for the aged, blind and disabled. At the same time, federal law has permitted certain immigrants to receive federal benefits, for example, All non-citizens, whether documented or undocumented, can receive emergency care at a hospital, immunizations, and they're eligible for disaster relief. And refugees and persons granted asylum are generally eligible for most benefits like citizens. Green card holders are eligible for most federal benefits only after they have resided in the United States uh, for five years or more. Now The Trump administration wants to tighten the rules on the public charge ground for denying a visa or granting a green card. It has released a proposed new rule that would expand the kind of public benefits that would count against the immigrant. Most importantly now, Medicaid and food stamps would be included. And it would change the overall test. So an immigration official would deny a visa if he or she determined that, given all the facts, a person is likely to receive federal benefits in the future at a certain level and for a certain length of time. Now, this may sound technical and not too different from past practice, but the implications for non-citizens may be quite dramatic. To help us understand the past, the present, the possible future of the public charge rule, I spoke with Mark Greenberg, who's a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute in Washington. Mark had previously served for seven years in the Department of Health and Human Services, and for three years, he was acting assistant secretary for HHS's Administration for Children and Families. Mark Greenberg, great to have you with us today. Thanks very much. So this public charge ground has been in federal law for for a long time, more than a century. What's its purpose? Why Why is it in the law?
1: Right. The public charge language actually first came into federal immigration law in 1882. So it has been there for a very long time. And broadly, it is intended to ensure that individuals admitted to the country um, are ones who are not likely to need to be dependent uh, on uh, public support that they should be supporting themselves. Um, There have been different interpretations over time of precisely what that means and what's the right standard to uh, apply to it. Um, and the nature of what it means has evolved over time as um, you know, as the modern welfare state uh, has developed. So we currently
0: have a set of guidelines issued in the late '90s that tries to help adjudicators determine how this uh, how this provision in the statute should be interpreted. What what is the current understanding of what likely to become a public charge
1: means? The Former uh, INS, Immigration Naturalization Service, had issued guidelines in 1999, recognizing the importance of bringing greater clarity. Um, And the 1999 guidelines, which still apply today, uh, essentially said that in seeking to determine if someone is likely to become a public charge, to look to a set of factors that have been specified by Congress, which uh, involve age, health, family status, assets, resources, financial status, education and skills, and whether the individual has a required affidavit of support. So I said, look to this set of factors, but in particular, the focus should be on whether they are likely to become primarily dependent on cash assistance for income maintenance or on government support for long-term institutionalization. So looking at a set of factors, but all in the context of this focus of primary dependence on cash or long-term institutionalization.
0: All right. And this rule applied to people applying for green cards outside the country, say, to join the family or to come for work, or people inside the country adjusting their status, as we say, from a student or a temporary worker to uh, to get um, a green card. And I'm just trying to think about how the, the immigration official then interprets it. The immigration official takes all this information from the person, and what is in his or her mind is the question of, is this person likely to become primarily dependent on cash assistance, basically welfare and supplemental security uh, income for age-blind
1: and disabled people. That's exactly right. Um, And over this period in the process, there is very, very heavy weight given to whether someone has the required affidavit of support and whether they have a legally sufficient affidavit of support, because that's the indication uh, that if they need help, that they will have a sponsor who is going to be available to help them.
0: Okay. Now, one of the factors that that might uh, be relevant is whether the person has used federal benefits in the past. Are people who are getting green cards now, either because they're coming into the country or adjusting their status, are they likely to have been on federal benefits in the past so that this would be a negative factor in their case?
1: Typically, that wouldn't be the case because if someone doesn't yet have a green card, there is actually not a lot that they would be eligible for by way of public benefits. Under the 1999 guidelines, the focus is very explicitly on cash assistance, and so it's not on non-cash benefits like SNAP, food stamps, housing assistance. It's not on Medicaid or other kinds of health insurance. You know, the focus is cash, but it, again, for someone who is um doesn't yet have a green card, um, they are very unlikely to be eligible for much by way of benefits. Okay. So the primary
0: test that the officer will be looking at then is this totality of circumstances test asking the question of, will they become primarily dependent on cash assistance, on welfare? So what would this new rule just proposed by the Trump administration do to change that standard?
1: The new rule would change it quite dramatically. It is still asking the question under the law of are you likely to become a public charge? They would provide in the rule that likely to become a public charge would mean likely at any point in the future to receive one or more of a set of benefits. And the proposed rule provides a list of the benefits. It is one that goes considerably beyond cash assistance for income maintenance and long-term institutionalization. It would add to that list SNAP benefits, food stamps, section eight housing assistance, Medicaid with very narrow exceptions, public housing and subsidies under Medicare Part D for prescription drugs. So it's greatly expanding the list. It's also setting a much lower threshold for when the receipt of benefits would count. It's not looking at primary dependence. It's a much lower threshold uh, than that. And again, it is asking, are you likely at any time in the future to be receiving one or more of these benefits.
0: So why would the government propose this? Was there evidence that too many poor people were sneaking into the country trying to get benefits? And even if they were getting benefits, weren't these benefits that Congress said they're in fact entitled to receive? What's the purpose of this new rule?
1: Frankly, that's one of the big questions um, because the rule itself in providing its justification, emphasizes that it is to better ensure that people subject to public charge inadmissibility are self-sufficient, that they don't depend on public resources to meet their needs, that they rely on their own capacities and resources of family members and sponsors and private organizations. So, that's the articulated rationale in the rule. But In my view, there is really very little in the discussion that explains what's the problem that they're trying to solve here. As you just alluded to a moment ago, in 1996, Congress passed extensive provisions of federal law around when immigrants are and aren't eligible for public benefits established quite significant restrictions on the access to public benefits in initial years in the country. And that's been the case ever since, and in the rule and the accompanying justification, I really don't see a lot that explains what is a significant issue or even a concern about the current structure and the current balance that justifies taking this on at this time.
0: Yeah, so I think there might be two possible justifications, and let's talk about uh, both. The first might be uh, saving money, if this in fact keeps people out who later would qualify for federal benefits. If they're kept out, they won't then ask for those federal benefits, even though they would be entitled to them. Um, And the second uh, part of the cost savings would be that this may frighten people who are eligible for benefits from applying for benefits because they misunderstand the rule and think that somehow by applying for benefits to which they're entitled it could subject them to deportation or other kinds of serious consequences do you think this might be behind behind the rule
1: you know, what we what we have in front of us is what they've said as to their justification we also do know though that this was something that the new administration wanted to do from the beginning. There was actually a uh, leaked draft executive order back in January 2017 that had listed this issue as something the administration wanted to take on. So, it's clear that it is seeking to discourage the receipt of benefits and as we've talked about it, this is to discourage receipt of benefits from people who are legally eligible for those benefits under the restrictions that Congress has established. It's also clear that there is a lot of research that raises big concerns about this chilling effect concept. And In particular, this research goes back to the 1990s when there were the changes in federal law uh, both around benefit eligibility and also the language of the statute around public charge. And the research makes very clear that after those changes in law occurred, there were significant drops in participation in benefit programs by immigrants that went well beyond who was made ineligible in the 1996 law. And so these drops in participation by people who are eligible but are either uncertain or afraid to access benefits are typically referred to as chilling effects. And There is considerable concern that they will be big here, um, in part because of the complexity of the rule, um, in part because of the uncertainty as to what's going to happen in the future, and the reality that we are living in a time of enormous fear and vulnerability in immigrant communities. So I'm really trying to get my head around this. See, the Congress has said
0: uh, immigrants, green card people, if they've been here for five years, and all refugees and asylees are entitled to benefits, but, but it looks like the administration is proposing a rule recognizing that there will be cost savings from people who are entitled to these benefits who are now worried about what receipt of these benefits might mean for their status. Is that a legitimate ground for adopting a rule by the administration? Is it possible that that actually violates the intent? Uh, of Congress's statutes here.
1: It seems very likely that when there's a final rule, there's going to be litigation challenging it. And I would certainly expect that among a range of issues people are going to raise, one of them will be that it's contrary to congressional intent to be discouraging benefits use by people who are eligible uh, for, for the benefits under the law.
0: Yeah. And let me suggest even possibly a, a more insidious justification. I love your reaction to it. Um, we know that the, that the administration wants to change the rules on legal immigration and have more skilled migration and less family-based uh, migration coming to the United States. Arguably, if this new rule gives more discretion with a, a standard that is easier to fail, that is, more people are likely to be found to be public charges, this will likely apply more to family-based immigration than labor-based immigration because people coming with jobs are likely to be able to meet the standard that they're not likely to be a public charge. Is it possible that this is a way for the administration to essentially reduce family-based immigration without having to go to Congress to get those reductions adopted?
1: I think that's exactly right. And that's one of the other major concerns about the proposed rule.
0: This might not actually mean a reduction in family-based admissions because the waiting lists are so long that there'll always be someone behind who seeks it, but it may actually be a shift uh, of a, a family-based admission from some countries to other countries. If people applying, let's say, from Central America, from Mexico are less likely to meet this test than people, say, applying from uh, China or India or other countries, it could it could represent that kind of shift, I assume.
1: Um- I think that's likely to be right, and we at Migration Policy Institute actually did an analysis that we put out in August, and but it's the analysis is still applicable because this aspect of uh, of the rule is still what people expected it to be, um, and what we looked at there is we did analysis for legally present non-citizens who came to the U.S. in the the past five years and found for that group, you know, which is as close as we could get to a proxy here, so for that group, we found that 56 percent of them were in families with incomes below 250 percent of the poverty line. But That was less likely to be the case for Europe or Canada. It was more likely to be the case for the Caribbean, for Mexico and Central America, for Africa. So it's right that where there are waiting lists, it may just affect the composition of who comes in. Um, But over time, there is a real possibility of it affecting the parts of the world and the countries that people come in from based upon who is going to um, be more likely to pass or not pass this public charge test.
0: Mark, because there's um, so much confusion in the in the public and particularly in immigrant communities, I want to have a, ask you a couple of specific questions to really clarify the information here. So this rule only applies to people who are seeking to enter the country on green cards or adjust their status to green cards and also non-immigrants, people as students and, and uh, temporary workers and others who are shifting from one non-immigrant status to another. But it does not apply to people already in the country who have green
1: cards. Is that right? Um, that, that is right with one narrow exception a place where it could apply to people with green cards is if they are needing to seek admission to the country, again, because they have been out of the country for 180 days. So, there are very, very narrow circumstances where it could apply to a green card holder, but on the whole, the answer in the vast bulk of cases is does not apply to green card holders.
0: Which is why someone with a green card should not be deterred from applying for benefits to which they're they're entitled. Well, what about um, families where a child who is a U.S. citizen might be on Medicaid or food stamps, and now the parent is seeking to adjust his or her status to get th- to get a green card? Does it apply in that case?
1: It does not. There has been um, confusion and uncertainty because what we have now is a proposed rule that's actually been published. And before the proposed rule was published, which happened on October 10th, there had been a couple of leaked drafts of earlier versions of the rule. Um, So there was a leaked draft in January, there was another one in March, there was a lot of analysis done based upon the leaked drafts. And in the March leaked draft, the rule at that point would have applied to looking at both the individual and use of benefits by their dependents. And so a lot was written based upon that. That has changed in the proposed rule that's now been published. So in the proposed rule, it is only focused on use by the individual, not their dependents. That means not by their citizen children or anybody else who is a dependent. And so it's just the individual and important for people to understand that they should not be fearful to receive benefits or assistance that their children need, because that is not going to count against them in this process. Let me also just quickly say, because there has been this confusion, that the the proposed rule would not apply for purposes of naturalization, for citizenship. This is about admission, adjustment of status, and then for non-immigrants, extension of stay or change of status. One other thing that's important to emphasize is that this rule would not change standards for deportation. We have seen from the, the government indications that they are considering whether to make changes to the standards for deportation, but that is not in this rule. And if that proceeds, that would be through a s- entirely separate uh, rulemaking process.
0: One of the other rumors that was out was that this would apply to, to, to kids who go to Head Start or get other kinds of educational benefits. Is that currently in the proposed
1: rule? It is not. It is not. Um, uh, there was concern based upon earlier drafts. But, you know, when agencies are writing rules, there are often lots of things they consider that don't wind up making it into the proposed rule that's actually published. Right. Um, Mark, I think one of the toughest things of
0: reading this proposed rule, and it's almost 200 pages in very small print in the Federal Register, is the, and a lot of it quite technical, um, are, are the paragraphs where the government says, uh, in looking at the cost and the impact of this rule, is that um, some people are going to be missing benefits. Their health will decline. Their income will decline. Their ability to take care of their families will be uh, adversely affected uh, and the like. Is this, is this in fact, a likely impact of the rule, and and, and how large is that impact likely to be?
1: I think there is – much reason to fear that that would be an impact to the rule. It's hard or probably impossible to quantify. But what happens in the in the proposed rules, along with it, the government has a responsibility to provide this cost-benefit analysis. And a lot of the cost-benefit analysis focuses on things like There will be new forms, and here's how long it will take to fill out the forms, and people will have to familiarize themselves, and there will be time and cost involved in that. So a lot of the cost analysis focuses on things like that. They then have a section which says we recognize the possibility of chilling effects, and they make an estimate that is based upon... Saying that if two and a half percent of the the foreign born population um, doesn't, the foreign born non citizen population, that if two and a half percent of them drop out of programs or fail to enroll in programs as a result of this, that that would mean. $1.5 billion a year in reductions in transfer payments. And they do say, you know, could be more than that, could be less than that, but they say if it's two and a half percent, that would be $1.5 billion. They then go on to say there are a number of other outcomes that we can't quantify, but we want to recognize that these could occur. And they actually proceed to list in the worse health outcomes, including increased obesity, malnutrition, reduced prescription adherence, increased use of emergency rooms, increased prevalence of communicable diseases, increases in uncompensated care, increased poverty, housing instability, reduced productivity and educational attainment. So they don't put a number on any of those, but they say these are all possible things that could happen as a result of the rule. I should note that there has been um, enormous concern expressed about the rule by a very, very wide range of groups, including a number of healthcare providers who are emphasizing that They are, in fact, concerned about precisely this set of outcomes if the rule goes forward.
0: You know, I I, I understand the reason for the public charge rule when it was originally adopted, which is to say folks who can't take care of themselves and has no one to take take care of themselves here uh, maybe shouldn't come into the country until they're able to or until they can find someone who will help them out, but taxpayers shouldn't be admitting people that they immediately then have to take care of. Maybe that makes sense. But to adopt a rule where it is known that some number, maybe large number of people will now not apply for benefits or will go off benefits to which they are entitled, which will have these kinds of negative consequences, but not to bother to really quantify what those might be in the end, it comes close to a kind of either – Uh, vicious neglect or almost cruelty that looks somewhat like the separation policy we have seen uh, with kids at the border, that we just really don't care about the impact on people who are lawfully uh, in this country and whom Congress has said are entitled to benefits.
1: So what is really striking in, you know, in their discussion of the rule is that, you know, there's lots of time taken on how long it'll take to do the forms, to learn the the requirements and so forth. Then around the question of how many people will actually be denied green cards as a result of the rule, they actually don't offer any estimate. They just say that there will be likely more denials. And then On the benefit side, I do think that they are quite clear that what they're saying is we want to discourage benefit use by eligible individuals, and that's a principal point of this. So, you know, it's not an unintended side effect. It is one of the goals is to discourage benefit use. Yeah. Well,
0: there, as you pointed out, there is now time for comment for 60 days, and then the final rule will be published, and I'm sure there'll be, uh, be lawsuits here. But um, Mark, thanks so much for uh, separating the fact from fiction here uh, as to what the rule does. There's been a lot of confusion. I think we need to get the word out, and then also for pointing out uh, the kinds of consequences uh, that are likely. I really appreciate your expertise on these very difficult questions.
1: Thanks. Thanks very much.
0: You have been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Technical assistance is provided by Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112. Our themes were composed by Eli Alenikoff. We would welcome your comments and suggestions. For future episodes, you can reach us at TossedTempest at gmail.com. That is TossedTempest, all one word, at gmail.com.